Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. We do want to pause. (laughs) (laughs) Awkward transition. (laughs) To give a big thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, but especially to our auger and excavator level patrons. Christopher, Colin, Maggie, and Peggy, you are too generous, and we are eternally grateful for your support. Listener, if you are not yet a patron, you can be. We are halfway to our goal of $300 a month. At $300 a month, we'll finally be able to upgrade our four-year-old recording equipment. Go to patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. Four years. Yeah, it's four years old. Wow. Our project is a uh, preschooler. It is. We are old. Does it get to go to school for free next mm-hmm. year? It gets to go to universal pre-K. Finally. Because of the nature of this episode, I just want to say a few things before we get started. First, I want to be very clear that this episode might be triggering or disturbing for some. We, we are not in the habit of giving warnings at the beginning of all episodes, but I think with this one, it's particularly necessary. If you're listening with little kids or are sensitive to this kind of thing, please be forewarned. Second, I want to note that language is going to be a real challenge in this episode, and that's not just because we're going to be pronouncing a lot of German words. In many cases, we'll need to use the language that the perpetrators used, which is obviously, by today's standards, not ideal language, and often, you know, is totally inappropriate for use today. We'll try to be as transparent about that as we can. And finally, I want to say that this is an absolutely horrific topic and we're going to treat it as such. But we still might slip up in our reading, pronounce something wrong, and laugh about it. So please remember that we are human and that this is tough for us too. If we giggle once or twice, it is not because we find any of this material funny or light, but because part of being a human is making a mistake and laughing sometimes, even in the face of real darkness. So, all right. With that said, uh, let's dive in. <laughs> no giggling. <clears throat> no giggling. Weird. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. 
1938, a German couple, their last name Nauer, welcomed a new baby into their family. Their joy was quickly replaced by horror and grief when they realized that their newborn child was severely disabled, with malformed arms and legs. The child also suffered from convulsions. The child's father took the baby to the Leipzig University Children's Clinic, where he asked director Werner Cattell not only if he could admit his baby to the hospital, but also asked if Cattell would help his baby to die. Cattell refused. It was illegal to kill a baby, no matter how severe their level of disability. Mr. Nauer then went directly to German Chancellor Adolf Hitler, writing a plea to the Fuhrer to ask that he allow his child to be euthanized. The Nauer family's plea ended up in the hands of Philip Buhler, the head of Hitler's private chancellery. Buhler brought the plea directly to Hitler, who decided that he must respond. Hitler asked his private physician, Karl Brandt, and instructed him to investigate the case consult with the doctors in Leipzig, and if he found that the child truly was doomed to a life of pain and inability, Hitler gave Brandt authority to kill it. Brandt followed these orders to the letter, and within a few weeks, the Nauer baby was killed. Inspired by the doomed Nauer infant and his father, who so tragically and so desperately wanted his child to die, Hitler decided that such decisions should not be made on an ad hoc basis, and thus took the Nazi race hygiene and eugenics project into its first murderous step, the organized, deliberate, and state-sponsored killing of children with disabilities. Within four years, this program would expand to include both children and adults, that the National Socialist State declared life unworthy of life, resulting in the killing of around 200,000 or more uh, men, women, and children. In today's episode in our eugenics series, we're talking about eugenics and its monstrous German result, the Nazi euthanasia program. I am Sarah. And I'm Avril. And we are your historians for this very depressing episode of Dig. Let's start by setting the stage. We will come back to those decisions in 1938, but we can't understand how we got to the killing of the Nauer baby without understanding first the transnational eugenics project taking place around the world, as well as the unique eugenics project growing within the Nazi regime. We've talked about some elements before, but let's recap anyway. Starting in the mid-19th century with the work of Charles Darwin, people around the world started to become increasingly interested in trying to use the principles of Darwinism to understand how humans, and by extension, societies, evolved. When Darwinian theories were combined with the work of other scientists, such as Gregor Mendel, who pioneered the science of genetic inheritance through his work with pea plants, People around the world began to think about how Darwinian concepts like evolution and survival of the fittest might connect to genetics. It was Darwin's relative, Francis Galton, who first coined the term eugenics, or the science of manipulating human breeding to curate a better populace. In the early 20th century, eugenics was a tremendously exciting science. 
with the potential to improve everything from public health to education to national treasuries. We've talked about this in a million different ways in past episodes. Or even in a, the, the, these four episodes, And obviously right? even in, yeah, this is the last episode of the series, so throughout this series. But also from talking about Margaret Sanger and the birth control, American Birth Control League, to the Nuremberg Laws, to Mary Stopes, to, you know, et cetera. Yeah, so this is, this is stuff that um, we, you know, if you are a regular listener, you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. The idea was that any number of social ills might be cured through the careful control of human breeding. Just as Mendel was able to shift and change and manipulate his garden peas through selective breeding, so could nations control their populations by controlling reproduction. Doctors and scientists considered all sorts of things hereditary traits, eye color and hair color and things like that, yes, of course, but also things like intelligence and behavior. And as a quick reminder, and this has come up in, I think, all of the episodes in this series, but I just want to make sure it's here in case you're listening to this one episode out of context. Um, There are two different kinds of eugenics, positive and negative. This has nothing to do with whether or not they're good or bad, but instead refers to what kind of action they involve. Positive eugenics focuses on encouraging or incentivizing reproduction from the good members of society. An example I always give to my students, for instance, is better baby contests in the United States. State or county fairs would have these contests where mothers would enter their fat white babies to prove that they were capable of producing exemplary children for the betterment of the American populace. And side note, I won a baby contest. I was in a baby contest in in the back in the 1980s. I was the friendliest baby at like the Jefferson County Fair. (laughs) That sounds like the prize they give to the baby who Who was not the winner. Yes, who's not the winner. Too bad you're ugly. You're the friendliest. (laughs) You have a nice personality. I still have my trophy, though. Oh, that's very sad. (laughs) An important component to all of this was the veneer of scientific objectivity. For example, researchers used diagnostic tests like the intelligence quotient or the IQ test Mm. to determine where people fell on a hierarchy of capacity. While these kinds of tests gave the impression of being objective, they were actually deeply shaped by pre-existing social prejudice. And still are. And still are. IQ tests. Mm-hmm. For example, during World War I, the United States Army allowed Harvard psychologist Robert Yerkes to perform IQ tests on nearly 2 million enlisting soldiers. Unsurprisingly, Yerkes found that certain groups consistently performed poorly, specifically immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe, while native-born whites tended to do much better. Yerkes insisted that this reflected these groups' hereditary inferiority, not the fact that, you know, English wasn't their first language and they didn't have the same access to American education, etc., etc., etc. They asked, like, really specific questions about, like, the rules of baseball and stuff like that that, like, you just wouldn't. You know, most people just wouldn't know, or many people wouldn't know. Right. Stupid. The result of the IQ testing was then touted as proof that immigrant populations were dangerous to the white American race. They had the potential to interbreed with whites and dilute their superior bloodlines. They were also weaker and more sickly and thus prone to spreading sickness to white Americans. 
Even more importantly, these inferior people reproduced rapidly and without consideration to the quality of their offspring, which tended to be impoverished and thus had a high likelihood of going on the public dole, draining the system for generations while contributing to nothing. To the eugenicists, this all seemed like evidence that these inferior people would hold the whole nation back in its progress. It may seem odd to start with American examples, but we aren't choosing them arbitrarily. And I promise it is not because I am an Americanist. Mm. (laughs) In this case, usually it is. In this case, it's not. Uh, American scientists and reformers were the leaders in the global eugenics project. For example, the Americans were the early adopters of the conclusion that the best way to stem the uncontrolled breeding of inferior groups was through sterilization. And I should say forced sterilization, Mm -hmm. right? Indiana passed the first sterilization law in 1907. And within two decades, half of all American states had some sort of sterilization law. Of course, probably the most well-known sterilization law was the one in Virginia that led to the Supreme Court case Buck v. Bell, Mm. in which the Supreme Court of the United States upheld the state's right to control the reproduction of citizens through sterilization, with or without their consent, as a measure for the public good. It's also the case that gave us Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr.'s famous statement in support, I should say infamous statement in support of eugenics, Three generations of imbeciles is enough. And if you haven't read Paul Lombardo's book about um, the history of Buck v. Bell, highly recommend it. Mm. Much like in the U.S. before World War I, the German eugenics movement was embraced by pretty much everyone across the political spectrum. Unlike the U.S., however, before World War I, the German eugenics movement was less concerned with race and more concerned with class. The poor seemed like the potential problem because of the fear that they would be a drain on the public purse, not a particular group of people deemed ethnically problematic. This isn't to say that the Germans didn't think about race at all. They were certainly, they certainly believed that white people were superior to dark-skinned people. After all, after all, they developed racial hierarchies that during their imperial projects in Africa. Mm -hmm. But race didn't seem like a pressing problem for Germans like it did for Americans, who had a far more racially diverse population. Right. For Germans, the non-whites, largely before World War I, were the people who lived in the colonies. Yes. There is a split between German scientists, however, over one aspect of race. The question of whether or not a Nordic, or as they soon began to call it, Aryan race, was superior to others. Increasingly, the pro-Nordic scientists began to embrace the term Rassenhygiene, or race hygiene, to describe their particular approach to eugenics. During most of the first half of the 20th century, the two terms, eugenic and Rassenhygiene, were used interchangeably, that is, until the rise of the Third Reich. One of the most important German eugenic scientists was Eugen Fischer. In 1908, Fischer conducted a study of the offspring of Dutch colonizers and Khoikhoi, who Europeans often refer to as Hottentots. His published study, which cemented his career and made him the leading German eugenicist, also significantly impacted the direction German eugenics took in the years following. In particular, Fischer's work informed the creation of the Nuremberg Laws, which Averill talked about in great detail in an episode a while back. 
Fischer also cemented the place of race in German eugenics and upheld the superiority of the Aryan race. He wrote this in his 1908 study. We still do not know a great deal about the mingling of the races, or Rassenmischling, but we certainly know this. Without exception, every European nation that has accepted the blood of inferior races, and only romantics can deny that Negroes, Hottentots, and many others are inferior, uh, has paid for its acceptance of inferior elements with spiritual and cultural degeneration. The racial element of eugenic thought crystallized during the upheaval of the Weimar Republic. As disaffected Germans turned toward nationalism to help them make sense of their World War I defeat, the concept of German racial superiority in a society based on racial purity was appealing. This nationalistic racist ideology became known as Volkisch. Later, the Nazis morphed the concept of Volkisch into the term Volk, which referred to the German people as a strong, racially homogeneous whole. The leading scientists who embraced a Volkisch version of eugenics included Jürgen Fischer, who worked for the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Anthropology in Berlin-Dahlem, Ernst Rudin, a founding member of the Society for Race Hygiene and later director of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Psychiatry in Munich, Otmar von Verschur, a doctor known for his interest in twin studies who worked with Fischer in Berlin, and Hans Gunther, professor at University of Jena and University of Berlin. All of these men would go on to join the NSDAP, the Nazi party, and be powerful scientific advisors to Adolf Hitler. They would also become the architects of the Nazi program to purge, quote-unquote, inferior peoples from the German public. Over the Weimar period, the race hygiene wing of German science grew. Numerous centers were founded, like the ones that we just mentioned that, that all of those men worked at, uh, to study race science. And by 1923, German universities offered dozens of classes on race hygiene. In 1921, three leading eugenicists, Fischer, Aaron Bauer, and Fritz Lenz, published one of two texts that became foundational to Nazi race science entitled Outline of Human Genetics and Racial Hygiene. The concepts outlined in the book appeared later in another foundational Nazi text, Hitler's Mein Kampf. But I mentioned that there were two texts that became foundational specifically to Nazi science. The other was the 1920 book by Carl Binding and Alfred Hoke entitled Authorization for the Destruction of Life Unworthy of Life. Binding was a legal scholar and Hoke was a psychiatrist. And I, if I understand correctly, Binding did most of the writing and Hoke sort of um, justified it with a kind of a social science lens afterwards, or after it was largely written, I should say. The text focused not on the issue of race in the German eugenics project, but on the issue of disability, specifically the population of Germans who lived in institutions with psychiatric or intellectual disabilities. The book explicitly argued that the law should allow for the death of so-called incurable feeble-minded. And I should pause here to say that the term feeble-minded was very, very broad. It could mean a great many things. Like you could be alcoholic and be considered feeble-minded. You could be quote-unquote sexually promiscuous and that would make you feeble-minded it didn't necessarily always mean that you were um had some sort of you know intellectual or developmental disability right 
Bending reasoned that suicide should be considered a human right and expanded that right to the right to die to avoid an otherwise long or painful death. And his example is cancer. If you have cancer, you should have the right to choose to die on your own terms. But then Bending and Hoke expanded this even further, arguing that there was a category of people called Lebensunwert, or life unworthy of life. This included people dying slowly of painful diseases like cancer, but also people who were so inferior, so disabled, that they also deserved to die. To quote historian Henry Friedlander, quote, he used the argument that the terminally ill deserve the right to die a relatively painless death to justify the murder of those considered inferior. And I wrote painful death, but it's supposed to be painless. (laughs) Makes more sense. Yes. After this point, the idea of euthanasia became sort of fuzzy and unclear. When we talk about euthanasia today, we're often talking about our pets, putting them to sleep painlessly so they don't have to suffer anymore. We might also talk about physician-assisted suicide. But what Binding and Hulk proposed in this text was not that. Instead, they put forth the idea that euthanasia should be used to relieve not the individual patient, but the people. By killing people deemed Lebensinwert, they could help to ensure a stronger, pure Volk. While Binding looked at this from a legal standpoint, Hoke added his expertise as a physician. Hoke, unsurprisingly, rejected the tradition of first do no harm, as required by the Hippocratic Oath. Instead, Hoke argued, doctors always needed to balance individual needs against the greater good. Moreover, Hoke argued that this would be a good thing for the medical profession because by killing these useless eaters... And that's the other term that they... It's, it's, they refer to them often as life unworthy of life or as useless eaters. They would have the opportunity to gather useful anatomical specimens for research, which would help future doctors understand what caused disability and work to prevent it. Right. Yeah, and it, this is... Um, has some really strong parallels um, to things we talked about a lot on the the podcast, right? Lots of things about, you know, bone and body part collecting in the name Mm -hmm. of science, right? Um, And this is, this is so, there's so much here and so many connections that I think we could just talk about this forever probably. But, um, oh, I think that, that there have been, like disturbing examples of when there have been government overreach in terms of public health, like subjugating a particular person for the betterment of society. Mm -hmm. Right. And that, that can be very negative in terms of like my example here was Mary Mallon or typhoid Mary, who was um, imprisoned, incarcerated Mm -hmm. for the majority of her life um, because she was a healthy carrier of, Um, typhoid. But then on the other end, there are things that I think all of us would agree is necessary for people to do um, where the state should have control or should have more power when it comes to public health. Like, for instance, vaccination. Yeah. Right. We're in the middle of a measles outbreak in Mm -hmm. New York State um, and people die of the measles or at least of secondary infections because of the measles. And so there are. This is. What the what the Germans were talking about in the 1930s was kind of like, it seems so 
horrific to us today, right? Be- but that's because with hindsight, we can see how far on the spectrum it is. Yeah. But it also fits within this thing, this spectrum where we do tolerate a certain amount of this kind of state control, if that made yeah. any sense. As the Weimar gave way to the Nazi regime in 1933, German scientists found that their wildest dreams were directly in line with Nazi ideology. After all, the eugenicists openly called for a rise of the Volk, this pure, strong, united German people. The eugenicists made their living trying to find ways to use science to achieve such a thing, right? And while the Americans never were able to go quite so far as to call for euthanasia because of the political climate in the United States, there are a couple glaring exceptions to that, one being Harry Heiselden, author of the book The Black Stork, um, in which he recounts when he withheld care from a very sick infant. infant. Uh, the more radical eugenicists in Germany found a natural home with the radical politics of the NSDAP. The German scientists benefited from the funding and the support offered by the Third Reich. In return, the scientists offered their expertise to the Nazis, teaching classes on race hygiene, conducting scientific research that benefited the Reich, and working to create the race and ability categories that could be used to exclude those deemed outside of the Volk. For instance, one of the things that eugenicists were obsessed with, both in Germany and outside of Germany, was genealogy, the careful study of entire family lines to determine their fitness and purity. These family histories were then used in Germany to determine who was in and who was out of the Volk. As Henry Friedlander notes, they fully supported the regime's policy of exclusion designed to improve the racial stock of the German nation. The project to cleanse the fatherland began not with killing, but in the same way that it started in the United States, with forced sterilization. In July 1933, just months after Hitler's appointment as chancellor, Germany began to require that all those diagnosed with certain mental and physical disabilities, including schizophrenia, congenital feeble-mindedness, manic depression, epilepsy, Huntington's disease, blindness, deafness, hereditary deformity, and alcoholism be sterilized to prevent them from having children. A few months later, the marriage health law required that all those seeking marriage licenses had to undergo screening to prevent so-called degenerate people from marrying healthy Germans. And that was something that was happening in the United States, too, on a state-by-state basis. But um, it was very common in the United States, even until the, like, 1970s or 80s, I think, Mm -hmm. maybe later than that, for people to have to get blood tests before they could get marriage licenses. Weird. So, again, we're, you know, not starting in, like, crazy radical territory, but in stuff that people are doing around the the world, Mm -hmm. right? They interpreted degeneracy quite broadly, though, including mental and physical disabilities, but also criminal and asocial tendencies, which most eugenicists agreed were inherited in the same way as eye or hair color. In 1935, the Nuremberg Laws were passed, which I discussed back in in an episode a while back, and these laws focused on protecting German bloodlines from being diluted by interbreeding with the Jews, the Roma, the Sinti, and Blacks. 
So while Nazi ideology about ability, health, and race were all sorts of interconnected, I think it's really important to note that the laws requiring sterilization for the disabled applied even to those who were ethnically German. Right, right. So it has overlaps with racial others, yeah. but it's also applying to people who, by all other measures, should have been part of the Volk, who were quote-unquote Aryan, right? We won't go into great detail here on the sterilization laws because I Averill did talk about uh, it quite a bit in the Nuremberg Laws episode, um, and she gave great statistics on just how many people were sterilized. But I do want to go into greater detail on one point, that this was targeted at people who were ethnically German. We tend to think that the Nazi project to cleanse and protect the Volksgemeinschaft was all about purging those who were considered racially inferior, specifically, of course, the Jews. But the quality of the Volk wasn't just defined by racial purity. It also had a sort of intangible quality that had to do with one's ability to contribute to the betterment of the Volk. Historian Edith Schaeffer refers to this quality as Gemut, a word that has a long history in German culture. The meaning of Gemut shifted over time, from Immanuel Kant declaring that it was the origin of a person's transcendental faculties, to the 19th century connotations of sociability, having strong bonds with friends and family, being friendly and connected. During the Third Reich, Gemut became a critical part of being part of the Volk. In a 1938 German dictionary, Gemut was defined as, quote, a term peculiar to the Germans and not translatable into any language, involving the feeling of inwardness of the soul with which the German man experiences himself and his entire being rooted deeply in his racial feelings and values. And I think there we can see how there are these strong connections between ability and race, right? Those are still kind of connected. Another dictionary stated that having gemut would endow the environment with a spiritual quality and that a person with gemut would, quote, feel a cosmic empathy for and an ability to integrate himself into the natural and human world that envelops him. Gemut, therefore, came to indicate your connectedness or integration into the German community, both racially, socially, and even spiritually. And this makes sense when you think about how very collective and social the Nazi state was. Young men were expected to join the Hitler Youth, while, which trained them to be good German citizens and soldiers and filled them with a sense of loyalty and nationalism. Similarly, girls were expected to join the Bund Deutscher Model, or the League of German Girls, which trained them to be healthy and capable mothers and wives. Which is in itself eugenic, yes. right? Adults were supposed to work in support of the collective good, fight in the armies, or study in the universities, or manufacture Volkswagens <sighs> to advance the interests of the Volk. <laughs> Volkswagens. I know. Ah, and BMWs. Remember when you used to drive one? I didn't have a I didn't have a Volkswagen. That's not what your mm -mm. previous vehicle was. It was a Volvo. Oh. Swedes. Swedes. All right, fine. I'm sure they had no slave labor or anything. No, no, no. Definitely also not not Nazis at all. Definitely not. No Nazis. white supremacist Swedes among the Swedes. Definitely not. <laughs> that was sarcasm. Yes. So disabled people posed a number of threats to the German state. If they were physically disabled they might not be able to perform work to support the collective and instead become useless eaters, consuming resources and offering nothing in return. 
Those with hereditary diseases had the potential to infect the racially pure and healthy Volk. And those with intellectual or psychiatric disabilities, or even those who are deemed asocial for being criminals or being promiscuous or just even being troublesome at school or home, were problematic because they did not have gemut. In fact, this was the greatest quality that Austrian physician Dr. Hans Asperger used to diagnose children with what he called autistic psychopathy, or what we might now label autism. Autism, according to Asperger, was effectively a spectrum of gemut. Those who lacked gemut could not be integrated into the Volk, but others diagnosed with autistic psychopathy, but with still some level of sociability, could. Right. So we understand autism as a spectrum. Right. And those who are have what, until I think recently, and maybe still in the vernacular today are called having Asperger's or mm-hmm. As- Asperger's, um, they still had enough gamut that mm-hmm. they could be rehabilitated. But then people on the other end of the spectrum, people who are nonverbal or, you know, were more severely autistic, had this autistic psychopathy, mm-hmm. could not be rehabilitated because they lacked gamut. Mm. So even if, again, ethnically German, but lacking gamut, they don't fit. Right. So let's go back to the Nauer baby. When Mr. Nauer begged the doctors and later the representatives of the Reich to kill his baby, it gave Hitler and his doctors the perfect segue into the next phase of this eugenics project, essentially fulfilling the desires of Binding and Hoke, the implementation of a system that they called mercy killing, focused on children. The project was spearheaded by a group of doctors, psychiatrists, and members of Hitler's chancellery, including his private physician Karl Brandt and advisor Victor Brock. The project would be top secret, and so they created a structure of fake agencies with fake addresses to use as a cover. The doctors who signed most of the paperwork involved all used code names. Starting in the summer of 1939, the Reich sent out a decree called the Requirement to Report Deformed and Etc. Newborns, which required that doctors and midwives make a report of all children born with deformities, paralysis, what they called mongoloidism, now often you know is called Down syndrome, um, or other disabilities, to the Reich Committee for the Scientific Registration of Severe Hereditary Ailments Office. <laughs> And and side note here, important side note, the Reich Committee for the Scientific Registration of Severe Heredity uh, or Severe Hereditary Ailments, it didn't exist. There was no Reich Committee. It was a cover for the KDF or the Kanzle des Führers, which was Hitler's inner circle. They also asked that they report all patients under the age of three with similar conditions, but eventually, as the war dragged on, older children and children with other types of ailments were also included. And one other, I know lots of side notes here, but this is another important side note on the Nauer baby. There are a lot of conflicting stories about this baby. Some historians present it more or less how I've presented it, as the first euthanasia case, again, euthanasia in quotes here, with the parents, not the Reich, as the impetus behind the decision, the decision to kill. In 2003, the German government archives announced that they had identified the child. It turns out Nauer was yet another pseudonym. The child was actually named Gerhard Kretschmar, the son of a farmhand. 
Another important addition here is that some scholars, including Patricia Heberer, who works at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum and who is an expert on the children's program, has argued that the Nauer case was a trial balloon and not the actual inspiration. Records indicate that the child's case was presented in 1939, not 1938. So after the children's program was already in the planning phase. Therefore, the Nazis used the story of Gerhard Kretschmar, um, the quote-unquote Nauer baby, with a fake date of 1938 and probably exaggerated the story about his parents begging for the release of a quote-unquote mercy death as a way of demonstrating that this program was in response to a pre-existing desire to release life unworthy of life, that they were performing a service, Mm -hmm. not conducting um, this murderous project of their own accord. The requirement did not indicate why the Reich was collecting this information. It would have certainly been in keeping with larger eugenic efforts to keep records and make family trees. When a doctor or midwife submitted a form, Dr. Hans Heffelman and Richard von Hagener collected the forms from a post office box, then delivered them to three experts, Dr. Werner Cattell, a pediatrician, Dr. Hans Heinze, a psychiatrist, and Dr. Ernst Wenzler, another pediatrician. These three doctors reviewed all of the reports. They marked each report with a plus sign, a minus sign, or an O. Pluses meant that they would be included in the program, meaning that the child would be killed. Minuses meant that the child would live. An O, or a note of observation, meant that doctors and the nurses should watch and evaluate the child further. Each form went through all three doctors, so they were aware of how the others were voting. And this certainly must have influenced them not to cause problems by disagreeing. Right. The Reich Committee created special wards at hospitals and clinics around Germany, and later in Austria after the Anschluss. This required bringing other doctors and hospital administrators into the secret, and getting them on board with establishing killing wards within their hospitals. Many were more than willing to participate. In all, 22 killing wards would be established just for children. Children who were deemed disabled were reported to the Reich Committee, Uh, that didn't exist, and then brought to a hospital with a killing ward. Often, this meant convincing the parents, typically by lying and saying that the child would be receiving some kind of specialized medical treatment. Then, the Reich Committee would send the hospital an authorization form, and they used this term specifically to keep up the fiction that the Reich was only acquiescing to a desire from parents and families to allow children to die, which, again was absolutely not what was happening. Once the authorization was received, children were sentenced to die, but typically only slowly. The doctors and nurses of the Reich wanted the deaths to appear as natural as possible, and so they killed by using fairly low-dose injections of barbiturates, such as luminol or varanol, or sometimes morphine, over the course of several days. Sometimes they crushed the pills up and mixed them into food or drinks. Sometimes the children fell, other times I should say they were injections. Sometimes the children uh, dosed with these medications fell into a deep sleep and eventually a coma. More often, however, food was also withheld. So the children lost weight, became sick, got secondary infections, developed pneumonia, and then finally died. 
In interviews after the war, many nurses, who were often on the front lines of committing these acts, explained their actions by trying to cast this process as kind and painless. After all, they reasoned, these were mercy killings. The program was supposed to be efficient and organized, but in reality, most of it came down to circumstances and ad hoc human decision-making. For instance, because reporting was required, and many doctors and midwives did not know what the reporting was actually for, they sometimes thought that the reports were going to result in advanced medical treatment. In those cases, sometimes they exaggerated, or at the very least did not hold back, in describing symptoms. Physicians sometimes disagreed about what kinds of disabilities warranted death. What was more problematic for the Reich, though, was the children's parents. Although they tried to fashion the whole project as based on parents like Mr. and Mrs. Nauer, who asked for their child's death, and after the war, many doctors tried to frame their participation in that light, the reality was that most parents did not want their children to die and did not know that hospitalizing their children meant their certain death. This meant that the Reich Committee had to add one more layer of lies by coming up with a believable cause of death for children who were otherwise healthy. For example, at Spiegelgrund Children's Clinic in Vienna, Austria, where Hans Osberger sent dozens of children between 1940 and 1945, at least 789 children were killed. Three quarters of that number had an official cause of death listed as pneumonia. Hmm. While we know that a certainly a good number of children did die of pneumonia in 1940 to 45, it was, of course, not noted that the pneumonia was the intended result of slow, steady food restriction and barbiturate poisoning. The children were only the first step in the Third Reich's project to rid Germany of life unworthy of life. Since Binding and Hoke's first suggestion in their 1920 treatise, the desire to euthanize, quote-unquote euthanize, those considered a drain on the system had been discussed in the Nazi upper echelons. In the summer of 1939, when everything was in place to begin killing the children, but no children had yet died, Adolf Hitler began plans to expand the program to include adults. He met with Leonardo Conti, a doctor, a longtime member of the NSDAP, a member of both the SA and the SS, and eventually the chief of health for the Reich, um, as well as two political advisors in the summer of 1939, and began to plan an adult euthanasia program. Hitler stated that he quote, considered it appropriate that life unfit for living of severely insane patients should be ended by intervention that would result in death. To illustrate his point, he described patients in institutions who ate their own feces. After the war, many doctors and administrators implicated in the euthanasia program in the Nuremberg trials repeated this example, but it's unlikely that it was based in any kind of reality. It was like the most egregious example they could think of. And so they use it as an excuse for why those people were killed. Like, look at the, they're like animals. Eventually, the task of leading the program fell to Philip Buhler and Karl Brandt, both of whom had important positions in the children's program. 
Like in the children's program, they had to convince doctors and hospital administrators to participate in the scheme, but understandably, many of them hesitated. Not because they were unsure about killing their disabled patients, but because they were afraid of prosecution. To appease them, Brandt and Buhler asked Hitler to make a written order explicitly authorizing them to undertake a euthanasia program. Having a written record was something the Nazi high command was trying to avoid. Think about all the fake names and the post office boxes they used in the children's program. But the adult program required a greater buy-in from collaborators, and so needed a greater level of assurance of its legality. In October 1939, Hitler wrote a memo on his personal stationery, backdated to September 1st, 1939, the day that the invasion of Poland began the war. And they backdated it so that they could attribute this program to the war effort. Mm -hmm. The memo read as follows. Berlin, 1 September 1939. Reich leader Buhler and doctor of medicine Brandt are charged with the responsibility of enlarging the competence of certain physicians designated by name so that patients who, on the basis of human judgment, are considered incurable can be granted mercy death after a discerning diagnosis. Signed, A. Hitler. Just a side note here about this authorization. In the final days of the war, uh, when the Nazis were trying to cover their tracks, all copies of this letter were destroyed, along with, of course, tons and tons of other documents about the final solution and Mm -hmm. things like that. But one copy survived, and it was a photocopy that Philip Buhler had sent to Franz Gertner, uh, who was the Reich Minister of Justice. And it was discovered tucked away inside a file, inside like a file cabinet of tons of other papers Mm -hmm. and so what's absolutely wild about this is that this letter uh, was so dangerous in Mm -hmm. terms of war crimes after the the war right Mm -hmm. that they this was one of the the papers that they were desperate to get rid of and they found this one copy of it and it's this one copy um that you know nails them and and nails it specifically to hitler because there was also sort of an an attempt to make it seem as though hitler didn't personally authorize it and therefore it was just these kind of radical doctors Mm. right but no hitler Hmm. authorized it Hmm. the operation to kill disabled adults was codenamed action t4 a name derived from the address of the house in Berlin where it was headquartered, Tiergartenstrasse Number 4. The adult program required more centralized administration than the ultra-secretive children's program. It even had a business manager, Gerhard Bone, uh, a finance office. It had its own motor pool. The workers were paid salaries. Eventually, and this just blows my mind they had a vacation home set up for staffers to use for getaways partly because i think they thought this is very psychologically stressful people are going to need to take vacations to recover from all of the people that they're murdering like the children's program the reich created front operations to hide the real purpose of t4 Fake organizations included the Reich Cooperative for State Hospitals and Nursing Homes, the Charitable Foundation for Institutional Care, the Charitable Foundation for the Transport of Patients, Incorporated, and the Central Accounting Office for State Hospitals and Nursing Homes. And what's particularly disturbing to me about all of these is that they were disguised as organizations that were 
um, supposed to aid disabled people and institutionalized people. Again, to make it seem more realistic. And yet the opposite. Exactly. But, oh my God. And the worst part of it is that they come up with those institutions with those names, knowing that these people need help and need protection. Like, that's, that yeah. is really it, That's disturbing. why they came up with those names, yeah. right? Because the big, the, the part of this that took me a while to wrap my head around is the fact that they know that this is wrong. Mm-hmm. They know that this could all be considered war crimes if they don't win the war. Mm-hmm. And they know, most importantly, that average German people would be would be opposed, opposed to, it. to it. Yeah, And so it, it's just such a mind f- to try to get your brain yeah. to understand the mindset of that. But yeah. So starting in the fall of 1939, the ministry that oversaw the program asked local governments to report all institutions containing mental patients, epileptics, and the feeble-minded. When they received these lists, the central office sent out questionnaires to the hospitals asking for information on all patients who fell into particular categories. Epileptics, syphilitics, the feeble-minded, schizophrenics, those who were senile, as well as anyone who was non-Aryan. Doctors completing the questionnaires were also asked to indicate whether individual patients could perform any labor. The doctors, again, did not necessarily know what the questionnaires were for, and sometimes tried to indicate that their patients could not perform labor, thinking that perhaps they were saving them from work camps. In reality, they were making it more likely that they would be killed. Even then, the questionnaires had very limited space, meaning that doctors had no choice but to be brief in their comments. And again, that's intentional, Mm -hmm. right? In the children's program, only three doctors determined the fate of all patients. But there were far more adults, meaning that the administrators had to recruit more doctors to agree to be evaluators. They organized two groups of evaluators, senior and junior doctors, all recommended through their professional networks, carefully vetted for party loyalty, and who each agreed personally agreed to participate. No one was forced. Henry Friedlander is very emphatic about this. They all had the option to leave. They all opted to stay. No one was forced to participate. Decisions to kill went through two rounds of evaluation. First, it went through a round of junior experts. Almost all, in fact, all but three of the physicians used as experts were in this junior group. So, There were two groups, but the majority, almost all of them, were in the junior group. The junior experts evaluated hundreds of reporting forms sent from hospitals and institutions all over Germany. Friedlander uses Hermann Fahnmuller, one of these junior experts, as an example. Fahnmuller received huge stacks of evaluation forms, sometimes 200 to 300 at a time, and returned them very quickly to Berlin to be processed. Post-war investigations, again, coming out of the Nuremberg trials, showed that von Muller had evaluated, quote, 2,058 patients between November 12th and and December 1st, 1940, which means that he made 121 decisions a day about the life and death of patients, or one decision every five minutes in a 10-hour day. So think about 
just how little attention he paid to any of those reports. Most experts who worked for the T4 program did not see themselves as killers. Indeed, Von Mueller defended himself after the war by saying that he was only a, quote, medical expert, just as any medical expert appearing in a case before a court. But for every form he evaluated, a human being either got to live or was sent to a killing center to be murdered by the Nazi state. After the junior experts signed off, the forms went to the senior evaluators, all three of them. These men more or less just signed the forms en masse. People were evaluated based on their ability to work. They were not really expected to ever truly join the ranks of the Volk, but they might at least perform useful labor. From that point, the patient's fate was sealed. The Central T4 offices would then handle the logistics. It arranged for the institution holding the patients to prepare them by gathering all their belongings and records and labeling them clearly on the back with a piece of tape bearing their name. They were then dosed with sedatives to keep them calm and easily managed. A gray bus from the Gekrat, which was a subdivision of the T4 program in charge of transportation, arrived at the institution, was loaded with distressed and confused patients, and drove them to one of the hospitals that were designated to serve as killing centers. The first was Hadamar, followed by Grafenek, Brandenburg, Hartheim, Sonnenstein, and Bernberg. And we know that at least some of the patients knew what was happening. One female patient, as she was being boarded onto the Gekrat bus, asked, Is it my fault that I am born this way and that they do this to me? Another wrote to his mother as he waited for his transport, Dear Mother, I want to write these final lines to you because I must leave here and do not know the destination. It is difficult for me. I thank you all wholeheartedly and say farewell, if not in this world, then hopefully in heaven, with heartfelt greeting, your grateful son. I'm sorry to make you read that. Yeah, I thought about whether to include those or not because they're so difficult to read. But in um, a copy that's giving a lot of time and attention to the perpetrators, I think it's important that we hear some of the victims' voices. And it's, from a document standpoint, it's pretty incredible that we have those documents. Yeah. Initially, T4 administrators and doctors planned to use a shortened version of the killing method used on the children, overdoses of drugs. But it would be expensive, time-consuming, and cumbersome to kill adult patients slowly. So they envisioned a system of injecting patients directly with barbiturates. This would still be a little onerous and would require doctors and nurses to do the killing directly. Although it's not exactly clear, after the war, several uh, of the doctors involved testified that it was Adolf Hitler himself who first recommended gas. In order to decide which was the better option, you know, drugs, injected, or gas, Karl Brandt and Leonardo Conti conducted an experiment comparing the deaths from injected drugs to inhaled gas at Brandenburg in the winter of 1939-1940. Brandt and Conti themselves performed the injections. They waited and watched, and according to their recollection, it took the patients a long time to die. 
two patients needed to be injected again to finish the job. On the other hand, the patients who had been gassed using carbon monoxide gas died within a couple of minutes. They had been escorted into a room fashioned to look like a shower. After they inhaled the gas, they died, again, according to the Nazi chemists observing this, quietly and calmly. It seemed pretty clear to Bront and Conti that using gas was better than using these direct injections. And so very quickly thereafter, all of the killing centers started to implement gas chambers to to kill these patients. So after patients were taken into the gas chambers, which again, fashioned to look like showers to keep them sort of not knowing what was happening, the room, um, and after they were deceased, the room would be cleared of gas, the bodies could be removed, And while the process differed a little bit, depending on the individual killing center, they were almost always taken to be cremated, sometimes in the institution itself, which had some of them had cremation um, facilities built on site. Sometimes it was in a building or even a home nearby. One of them had fashioned a cremation center in a house in the village. And it was usually fairly obvious to people in the area what was going on at the hospital. At Hartheim, for instance, villagers took note of the constant smell and the dark black smoke rising from a hospital outbuilding. And I should say some of the pictures that we have of, I think it's of Hadamar, it's either Hadamar or Hartheim. Um, from a distance, you can see the, the building of the hospital and then this very obvious black cloud of smoke. And while we can't prove exactly that's what that cloud of smoke is, it's, it's very, very likely that it's coming from the, the crematory. The process of killing with carbon monoxide gas was tweaked and perfected in these killing centers. What began as ad hoc spaces that could be sealed... And even one instance where a gas chamber was jerry-rigged with a pipe leading from a truck exhaust in through a window ended up becoming specially designed rooms made to look like showers with specialized airlocks and carefully measured gas pumped in, controlled from another room. I just want to say the the one where um, they sort of took a pipe and, and connected it from a truck exhaust and put it in through a window the um, Holocaust Museum has a video of that. Hmm. They recorded it because they, it was a test, mm-hmm. right? It was supposed to be an experiment to see how well it worked. They don't have footage from inside the chamber, obviously, but they have footage of them setting it up and implementing it. It's just was not pleasant to watch. Mm-hmm. Henry Friedlander refers to this as the hardware and software of killing. The built structures like crematoria and gas chambers served as hardware. The gas and even the human labor required constituted the software. The entire process was designed to simulate a normal hospital transfer. Patients were gathered into the Gekrat buses and delivered to the killing centers. Then they would be unloaded and taken to undress ostensibly for a medical examination and new hospital-approved clothing. All their belongings would be carefully labeled and set aside. Then a doctor would briefly examine them, and this made the patients feel a bit more at ease because it also fit into their expectations of a hospital transfer. But in reality, doctors were gathering information to help them generate a believable fake cause of death. 
you don't want to say a patient died of a sudden attack of appendicitis if they have an appendicitis scar already. Right. Often patients were then photographed or filmed, not to provide a record, but more often to be used as eugenicist propaganda, such as T4's 1942 film, Ikklagaan, our IQs. Then patients would be shuffled into a shower room, the door sealed shut, and killed with lethal gas. The next step was to notify the family, but of course they couldn't say why the patient had actually died. They also had to have a reasonable and believable cause of death. After the war, one clerk testified that the most common causes of death, quote-unquote, were heart attack, circulatory collapse, pneumonia, and stroke. Again, all things that generally happen suddenly and would be relatively believable for families. The T4 central office actually issued memoranda to physicians working in the killing centers with guidelines for faking death certificates. Then, the staff of the killing center in the literally called, quote, Department of Condolence Letters would write a short form letter to the family of the dead patient explaining their loved one's sudden and unavoidable death and explaining that the family should consider the death a release. In one letter, the staff at Brandenburg wrote this to a bereaved family, quote, In spite of all medical efforts, we were unable to save your husband. But as the nature and severity of your husband's illness did not encourage hope for improvement, and thus there was no longer any expectation that he could ever be released from an institution, one can understand his death as a deliverance as it delivered him from his suffering and spared him from institutionalization for life. May this thought be a solace to you. (sighs) Typically, they also told families that their belongings could not be collected, usually because there was a fictitious outbreak of infection. Again, not wanting them to come to the institution Mm -hmm. because it's not a hospital. It's a killing center, right? The whole program, including both the children's program and the adult T4 program, were supposed to be top secret. This is hard for us to wrap our minds around today because, in retrospect, we tend to think of the Nazis as brazen, uber-confident murderers. They certainly were, but that doesn't mean that they didn't understand completely that if these projects were discovered, there would be recriminations. Again, they're killing ethnic Germans. Yes. Right. This was especially true of these euthanasia programs, which didn't include racialized others, but members of families that were often otherwise welcomed entirely into the German folk. Parents like Mr. and Mrs. Nauer were not common. Even among people who were invested in the Nazi regime, the idea of murdering a beloved but disabled family member would be unpopular. However, the effort to keep the program secret totally failed. Locals around the killing centers easily guessed what was happening when they added up the evidence. The Gekrat buses delivering patients never seen again, the smell, the thick smoke. The program also required a lot of labor, which meant a lot of complicity. Mm -hmm. There were lots and lots of people who might share information with their friends or family members. And the effort to distance the Nazi party from the program by using front organizations, code names, and pseudonyms was 
unconvincing. After its harsh rhetoric on life unworthy of life, it was a no-brainer to see that the party was responsible for the steady disappearance of disabled people from institutions around Germany. Right. And that was another giveaway, as institutions are, you know, losing patients en masse. Where are they going? Right. Plus, there was some significant dissent. Parents of disabled children scrambled to save their children from the killing center, although many of them failed. The Catholic Church also spoke out against the program. In December 1940, the Vatican issued a decree denouncing the euthanasia program as against natural and divine law. But most German clergy did little to affect change. One German bishop, the Bishop of Munster, Clemens August Graf von Galen, gave a powerful sermon, which he then wrote out and sent directly to Hitler. While the sermons weren't printed in the German press for very obvious reasons, the Royal Air Force eventually started dropping printed copies of the sermon over German troops in an attempt to undermine support for the Reich. Church leaders in Germany increasingly spoke out, but this did little to affect the course of the program. Either way, the T4 program was suspended in August 1941. The reason for the suspension is different depending on which historian you read, but I think the general consensus is that it was this loss of that top secret status that led to its ultimate demise, although a shift in focus towards the final solution with its grander scope probably also had something to do with it. All the historians I read on this sort of fell into some version of that same kind of conclusion. Mm -hmm. But while the T4 program was no longer officially running, the deaths didn't stop. After its official end, the institutions began a period characterized by what many call wild euthanasia, where they continued to to kill disabled patients in a much more ad hoc manner, through starvation, injections of barbiturates, or withdrawal of of care. They continued to transfer disabled patients, but instead of transporting them all to killing centers, they were sent to various institutions. And what exactly happened to them is hard to pin down because they stopped keeping careful records, but they never returned and most did not survive the war. And of course, we know that deaths did not stop after the summer of 1941, but in general, the killing in Germany and Poland and the Soviet Union and elsewhere only expanded. We know that the intentional and focused extermination killings began in the Soviet Union in 1941 using the mobile killing units of the Einsatzgruppen in Operation Barbarossa. This was an attempt to exterminate the Jewish population by rounding up Jewish and Roma Sinti residents of towns and villages as the killing units moved through the Soviet Union, Poland, and Ukraine, gathering citizens by large pits and then shooting them. But much like injections in the initial phases of the euthanasia program, shooting hundreds of people while looking them in the face, hearing their screams, and then laboriously dealing with their mangled bodies afterward took a toll on the soldiers in these units. Ever focused on efficiency, the Nazis sought a better way to exterminate. They turned to their first experiment in mass murder, the T4 program, for inspiration. The idea of rounding people up, keeping them fairly confused, 
and delivering them to one centralized location where they could be killed using gas seemed much simpler and more efficient. Thus, when the T4 program was suspended, many of the perpetrators of that program were transferred into the death camps to help design larger-scale gas chambers and crematories. Heinrich Himmler decided to establish new killing centers and eventually turn some of the already established concentration camps, such as Auschwitz, into their own kind of killing centers. But they also learned in the T4 program that it was hard to to murder huge numbers of people without attracting attention and inevitably garnering criticism. Thus, the killing centers such as Kelmno, Sobibor, Treblinka, and Auschwitz were all established outside of the borders of Germany. At Auschwitz, the perpetrators decided to bypass the carbon monoxide, uh, which was difficult to come by and, and difficult to manage in the quantities that they would require, and instead use the fumes of a pesticide that was already commonly stocked in the camps, Zyklon B. So the Holocaust, in at least this particular way, was founded on the knowledge and the infrastructure developed on the euthanasia program. After the war, as part of the larger effort to prosecute the war crimes committed by the Nazis, a series of trials were held to hold Nazi doctors accountable. Between 1947 and 1948, 23 doctors, including Karl Brandt and Victor Brock, were tried in Nuremberg and a couple of other occupied German cities. This is where we get a significant amount of the information we have about the programs, both because the prosecutors did an insane amount of research and because the doctors were interrogated and required to give testimonies for hours at a time. In the end, seven were sentenced to death. Seven! Of 23. And 23 is like a teeny fraction yeah. of the doctors who were actually complicit. Yes. Sorry. Couldn't help myself. She's angry. Well, death penalty. Including Karl Brandt and Victor Brock. Others, including Otmar von Verschuer, Jürgen Fischer, and Hans Asperger, were never prosecuted because they were distant enough to appear to not be complicit. Yet others, including perhaps the most infamous Nazi doctor, Joseph Mangala, escaped entirely and were able to live out their lives without any punishment whatsoever. Many of those physicians, like Verschur and Fischer, for instance, were actually in a great position after the war because they had four more years of research and hands-on training as they experimented on and treated their doomed patients. Further, they had amassed a massive collection of biological specimens, specifically brains, that they could continue to use for study. One doctor, Julius Hallervorden, collected some 700 brains from the Brandenburg Killing Center, and they were used for scientific and medical research until they were finally laid to rest in a Munich cemetery in 1990. There was, um, the, periodically they will discover, um, Germans will discover, uh, more of this collected material in various institutions, universities, mm -hmm. um, and other kinds of medical institutions around Germany and Poland and places like that. Um, 
and they'll have to deal with it all over again. Like it's like, oh, here is this collection of. There was one that was a collection of slides, like prepared slides f- from brains, um, that were all collected from the children's program. Mm. And those I don't believe were dealt with un- until the two thousands. So there's those the the huge collection in Brandenburg, um, or from Brandenburg, I should say. But then there are these others that are just infiltrate the scientific and medical establishment in Germany. What I think is particularly disturbing about that aspect is that we have science, we have diagnoses that were developed using those specimens. Oh, yeah. There is a there's a disorder that's named after Haller Vorton mm-hmm. um, because of the research that he did on those brains. Mm-hmm. Um, very obviously, we have Asperger's syndrome. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is named after Hans Asperger. And for a long time, Asperger was actually held up as someone who was um, an example of how people could re- resist participating in the Nazi project because he made this argument that some people with autistic psychopathy could be rehabilitated mm-hmm. and that they could enter the Volk. But what was never what he did a. What he worked hard to keep out of his legacy was the fact that when he found children that lacked gamut, mm-hmm. he sent them to um, to die to die at um, Spiegelgrund, and Spiegelgrund was unspeakable. I mean, Spiegelgrund was horrific, um, and, and for the children who died, who were killed, but for the children that that lived through it and escaped um, or were liberated from Spiegelgrund. Um, and so it, um, and this is a conversation we had in the, the episode about the, the bone collectors, the skull collectors, right? right? How yeah. much of our science today is based on truly unspeakable, unethical mm-hmm. materials, specimens or, or knowledge gained, right? Mm-hmm. Um and what, how, how do we grapple with that? Or how many of our scientific advancements in the post-war period were through the labors of German Nazi scientists exactly. and doctors who escaped yes. justice yeah. and were recruited um, in the United States? Yeah. And, and what I think is really wild about this is that um, the... the his- the one book that I read for this by Robert J. Uh, Lifton, what it's called the Nazi doctors, which is um, one of the most famous treatments of this. Mm-hmm. Um, he did extensive oral histories with doctors who had either um, been uh, prosecuted at Nuremberg and served their time and then were released mm-hmm. or who just completely ex- escaped um, prosecution. And many of them, are you know make an argument after the war that yeah some of the doctors involved in the project were really evil and some of it was evil but but there were parts of it that i still believed in there were parts of it that i still i kind of understood like it made sense when he asked people how did you justify this to yourself while you were part while you were signing the paperwork well he was like well i was just signing the paperwork right like i wasn't actually seeing any of these people i wasn't killing any of them and mm-hmm. Even if, even though I did know that what was going to happen, it made sense to me because these people were so disabled that they really were not living. Mm. And so it's astounding to me how 
they were still able to believe in that. You know what I mean? That they were able to somehow (laughs) in their brains make this justification where, well, yeah, it was bad in the grand scheme of things, but my participation in it was actually still based on good thinking, good, good um, scientific justifications. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's intense. Um, oh, I I did want to say um, one final thing, and that's that as a historian of disability, um, I was really sort of disappointed and embarrassed with myself that I had never learned this. Mm-hmm. Um, and before I was really interested in this, the Civil War as my specialization, I was actually really interested in, in this period and interested in Germany specifically and did a lot of reading on it and had never learned about this in any class I've ever taken, never read about it in any book that I had to read about World War II never ever ever heard of it um and the only reason that um it's now kind of a (laughs) it's it's really important to me now to teach it right because if i didn't know about it then average people don't know about it not to say that i'm not average but i'm a historian do you know what i mean like Mm -hmm, if mm -hmm. i didn't know about a historian of disability then then average people on the street probably don't know about either and the only reason that i um that that kind of shift happened is because I was accepted into a Hess faculty seminar at the United States um, Holocaust Memorial Museum that was focused specifically on eugenics and um, the euthanasia programs. Mm -hmm. And it was an experience unlike any other, which I'm sure you can also speak to because you also were in one of these faculty seminars. Um, Totally changed the way that I will will teach eugenics going forward, and and I now have a entire class period that's devoted specifically to this in my medicine class. So I have to say thank you to um, Kira Craigo Schneider, who is a loyal listener, um, Karen Nakamura, Richard Vetzel, and all of our friends at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum um, for their all of the work that they do and for their guidance and putting together these faculty seminars to do exactly this, right? Yeah. To help more people learn about what what really happened uh, during the Holocaust, which today is more important than ever because yes. not only are there Holocaust deniers, but we are living in the midst of an upsurge in anti-Semitism. Uh, there was another shooting at a synagogue yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's more important than ever that we be very, very clear about what it means to be a Nazi. Yes. Thank you for listening. Yeah. We promise to come back with a less distressing season. Yeah. You can find... A series, I should say. You can find Sarah's uh, sources and further reading for this episode at digpodcast.org. The full transcript is also there for the episode if you would like to read through it. Um, And you know where to find us at dig underscore history on social media and um feel free to to continue this you know devastating conversation with us anywhere facebook twitter um send us an email we appreciate you listening and uh thanks for joining us for this series yep thank you bye bye This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Averill Earls. Thanks for listening.
This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.